This month is Tansy Hoskins, an author and journalist based in London. In March 2020, she released Footwork, What Your Shoes Are Doing to the World, an expose of the shoe industry and the damage it is doing to workers, consumers and the planet. Tansy's previous book, Stitched Up, The Anti-Capitalist Book of Fashion, is one of my favourites, exploring the political issues in fashion. It's a 360-degree view of the issues at stake, looking at everything from Karl Lagerfeld to Karl Marx. Actor Emma Watson chose Stitched Up as one of her favourite books. In her work, Tansy combines environmental concerns with the critique of capitalism and issues facing the global working class. Tansy is at the forefront of not only illuminating the problems facing fashion now, but thinking of how we might build a better future for all. This is Future Heist, conversations with people making change. My name is Rena Neve-Smith. Tell me about the book, first of all. Why did you choose shoes, particularly, as a garment that represents so much that needs to change in fashion? Well, I wanted to write about shoes partly because there hasn't been a critical book on shoes. Most of the books on shoes are, are, are like are more about the design of shoes, and they're mm-hmm. mostly... You know, but I wanted to go deeper into, you know, the very fabric of those shoes and the people who made them and, and, and explore, uh, you know, how they come into being. And also, shoes were one of the first objects to be glo- like globalised and to be made... Uh, on a truly global scale, scattered all around the world. And I just thought that was a really interesting story and something that um, needed exploring. And, you know, so shoes can be something that tell us more about the world that, that we live in. Tell me about that idea that they're one of the first things that's been truly globalised. Because, of course, when we look at the history of fashion production, the Industrial Revolution started in Britain and France and, you know, a small part of Europe. Um, before spreading out to the rest of the world. So why were shoes one of the first things that have become global? Uh, because they were, because they're really, they're relatively simple to make. Um, and because, I mean, the, the primary reason was because you could pay people a lot less if you got them made on the other side of the world than if you got them made in America or, or, or Europe. That was the, the number one consideration. So after, you know, after the Cold War ended, Uh, lots of different markets opened up so then you suddenly could start producing uh, in China or in Indonesia um, and that was just a gold mine you know it was a gold rush for for labor at that at that point yeah definitely and what is it about shoes particularly is it because there's less elements to the construction of shoes in particular well i mean garments like garments also went like went overseas very 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 quickly um 
but yes, I mean, you just need, you know, it's like it's a relatively simple job. I mean, it's, I, I hate the phrase unskilled labour. I mean, it's definitely, if anyone's tried making a shoe, I mean, I've tried making a shoe, it's really difficult. So it's, it's a skilled job, but it's one that you can be trained to do in a, in a relatively short period of time. Um, and then it's just, it's just very, very repetitive. And uh, the biggest cost really involved in making shoes is, is labour. You know, is is the pay packet of the people uh, who who are making them. So if you can slash that pay packet, then you can make far more, far greater profit on on the shoes that you're ultimately selling. Yeah, that is an interesting misconception, isn't it? In I guess not just in fashion, but in globalized industrialization. But the idea of skilled and unskilled labor, because actually, fashion most people know about the sweatshop reality of mass production but at the same time when it actually comes to the things that are being made it actually does take a lot of skill and so do you think that that makes it particularly the injustice of the pitifully low wages the awful working conditions do you think that makes that injustice particularly acute in fashion yes i do and i i also think that it's an incredibly gendered question i think this is about how society doesn't value the labor of women uh, like right right across the world, so you know those the fact that the wages are so low is intimately tied up with the fact that these are jobs being done you know like by women uh, and of course, uh, what we see now is that these are jobs being done by women in the global south, so there's a you know there is a, a racist element to the shoe industry and to to the fashion industry as well yeah, I think that's especially if reading the statistics about um, the gender imbalance in, in the workforce and it particularly affects women and of course children as well, there's children involved. And then also refugees. Refugees and migrants make up massive proportion of the workforce in so many parts of the fashion industry. And that's something you talk about in the book, isn't it, as well? Yeah, that was one of the, like, one of the more disturbing things was looking into the fact that there are you know, Syrian refugee children working in basement workshops in Turkey from the age of six, six years old, uh, who are stitching shoes which are then exported to, you know, to, to Germany and to Italy and to, and to, to Britain um, as well. And you've just got that horrible irony there that the shoes that these refugee children are stitching are welcome across the border they're welcomed into britain and germany and italy but the children themselves are not welcome to cross that border mm. and it's just you know it's, it's it's a very bleak part it's you know we've globalized the labor market but we've not globalized our, our, our common humanity mm. you talk as well in the book about how uh the labour conditions in the shoe production industry in particular are so much further behind clothing production. Why is that? Yeah, that was one thing I wasn't... Uh, yeah, I, I mean, that was one thing that I definitely discovered like when researching footwork. And I mean, so it's partly because there just there isn't the same spotlight on shoes as there is on clothing. And I think a big part of that is to do with the fact that although there have been... Um, like fatal factory accidents and fires in the footwear industry, there hasn't been anything on the scale of Rana Plaza, mm. uh, you know, which sent seismic shocks through the fashion industry and, and put a, a, a strong 
spotlight on fashion and, and on clothing. So there hasn't there hasn't been that, and as a result of that, there hasn't been as much NGO scrutiny and as much kind of journalistic scrutiny placed onto onto shoes. And so as a result, uh, shoe multinational corporations kind of doing mostly whatever they want to do. And as we know, that is that's never that's never ever good. Um, so you, you're kind of left with like a very, like a subcontracted, deregulated industry. Uh, where yeah, where conditions are really low, where the um, the whole like every point of supply chains are in crisis, from you know like the, the the leather industry and the chemicals that are involved in that to the glues that are being used, uh, like yeah, the whole thing the whole thing is a mess and it urgently needs regulation. How did you come across that? Because I know that you through your previous research and through the um, journalism work that you do. You have done a lot of research around the the fashion industry and the garment industry as a whole, including shoes. And so at what point did you realise that there was this imbalance between shoes and garment production? Well, it was partly from interviewing people who are experts on the industry and people who've been campaigning in this uh, and sort of gathering their opinion. And there was this consensus that, look, you know, shoes are at least a decade behind the rest of the fashion industry in terms of standards and and regulation and then also just kind of like just the things like the things that you see I mean like you go going into a shoe factory uh, like the ones that I visited in Eastern Europe and you are immediately hit by a very strong chemical smell that gives you a headache within like I mean literally like within half an hour like I, I had a headache my eyes hurt my nose was hurting and and it's just it's like you don't get that in in your average garment factory where people are just on on sewing machines so you know and then kind of looking into like more of the research about the chemicals that are in this and what people are breathing every day so the you know the conditions the material conditions are just are just worse in footwear can you explain, because a lot of people might not be aware of this, but what is it about fashion that leaves the system so open to this downward crush of worker standards? Because you talk about how the production of shoes represents the interdependencies and injustices shaping our world, and the fashion industry has a very particular way of making things, or, you know... Th- how we make clothes and how we make shoes is quite particular as opposed to other products in that it does have a longer production line basically can you explain a little bit about that for the listener yeah i mean i think i think it comes down to the fact that one of the things that is hidden about not just about clothing and about shoes but basically about everything is that the two things that make everything that we have is number one is human labour, uh, and number two is na- you know natural resources like the biosphere. Uh, you know within that I would include the animal you know the animal kingdom uh, uh, as well. And so, what every corporation wants to do is maximise the profits that it makes, and uh, on each each item that it that it makes. And so, first of all, what we've had is the natural world being treated like it's a completely free resource uh, and like this is so you know so that there's no consequences to, you know, like water is free and air is free and the land the soil is free you know and we're now living with the, with the consequences of that and then the other thing uh, that they have to squeeze is labor 
And so unless you are, unless you have slaves, uh, and some sections of the fashion industry do run on literal slavery, but unless you have slaves, um, you have to pay a wage. And so the, you know, people are literally rewarded for driving these wages down and down and down. Um, and, you know, uh, and so those, those are the two elements that go into fashion and go into you know, footwear and everything else. And Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. you know, absolutely made sense. And then I guess the other thing is there's a lack of accountability as well, isn't there? Because the brands who people are buying from and who people recognise are not the people who own the factories. Isn't that right? Yeah, so, so I mean, I guess, yeah, that's a very particular... Or like, yeah, something fashion does very well uh, is that the brands, you know, in, in the sort of 70s, 80s and 90s and early 2000s severed the link between uh, branding and manufacturing. So it's incredibly rare now to have a fashion corporation who owns any, any factories. You know, Britain, Europe, America used to be full of factories. Now that's not the case. You know, they've outsourced it. So, yeah, it's incredibly subcontracted and uh, and the whole supply chain is completely deregulated because obviously the other benefit of no longer producing in England but going over to Bangladesh or the Philippines or, or wherever is that you suddenly, oh, look, all these pesky environmental regulations have gone, all these regulations about... Uh, providing health care and maternity care and creches oh you know and a, a living wage oh that's all gone you know what a lovely corporate playground we now have absolutely and in Bangladesh I was reading that 80% of the export industry in Bangladesh relies on the garment trade and they employ an industrial police force who literally crack down on any union activity so the whole it really is a corporate playground. It's it's a country that's entirely gearing itself towards international corporations coming in and using its workforce. Yeah, you're yes, you're you're completely right. I mean, it's um, and that's terrifying. I mean, number one, to have your economy so exposed to a single industry is a ter a terrible idea. Um, yeah, so I'm very worried about what the future will look like for Bangladesh, whether through the rise of automation or whether, um, because, you know, companies you know, decide that wages in Bangladesh have gone above a certain threshold and then, you know, jog on to like Ethiopia or, or wherever. So, yeah, Bangladesh, incredibly overexposed and very, very scary. And then, yeah, like, like you say, uh, you, I mean, I think what people need to remember is that a lot of the time the politicians in Bangladesh are intimately linked with the factory owning class to the extent that often you'll have politicians who will also own factories um, or you'll have factory owners who are like retired army generals or you know um, so it's, a, it's a kind of like horrible Victorian style system where the workers are literally up against like a kind of old-school ruling class block yeah, that, you know, that will take whatever extreme measures it, it needs to keep the factories running. It really does feel Victorian, which is why I find it really interesting reading a, either Marx or what about what Marx had to say about the fashion industry, because the conditions really haven't changed very much since the 19th century. And if anything, they've just rolled out to around the world. It's really frightening. Yeah. 
And then I want to talk about um, what something you've just touched on briefly, but the the environment as well. Shoes, you know, most of them aren't recycled. You talk about that in the book. The link between this overproduction of one single item and the impact it's having on the planet is massive. Yes, it's terrifying. And it's terrifying when you think of, like, that we're making... Like, one of the scary statistics I found was that we make 66.3 million pairs of shoes every single year. And, you know, I was lucky to go up to some laboratories that are based at Loughborough University. And, yeah, they were saying, you know, 90% of shoes are not recycled. So there's this whole section of our of like the supply chain that we don't I still don't think we talk about it enough is that like what happens after that object is not with you anymore like where where you know where does it go and for shoes you know 90% of the time they're not being recycled so like where you know where are they going yeah and what consequences is that having on the planet if we're just burying this stuff that is going to be there in a thousand years time Absolutely. Something I think I found really interesting, which you talked about in Stitched Up, was the conversation around fast fashion. Because you were talking about the way consumers get blamed and how that's really wrong, actually, to just for corporations to turn around and say that individuals need to buy better. Has this research around shoes confirmed that those thoughts that you had about fast fashion? Yes, it, yes, it definitely has. I mean, I'm, I'm like, I'm really keen to avoid, uh, like, basically class shaming people, and I think a lot of, a lot of the time, sustainability movements kind of fall into that trap, and it's just like it's really not people's fault if they don't have the money to save up to buy like a two hundred pound pair of uh, trousers uh, or, or whatever. Um, you know, the ability to save money is a condition of class. And I think not in a lot of the time people don't remember that uh, enough. And yes, yeah, definitely. I mean, definitely shoes has, has completely confirmed that. It's like the longer lasting shoes are the expensive shoes. It's like if you you know you go into somewhere like like Shoe Zone, it's like people you know you can buy a pair of boots for fifteen pounds, uh, and they are not like they're not going to last. But that's not the fault of the person who only has 15 pounds to buy a pair of shoes for their for themselves or for their you know for their child um so yeah it's it's horrible um but you know eventually we need a we need a restructuring of our of our society so that we have a level playing field and that everybody can afford nice things yeah exactly and it's that idea of we have the resources to create a world where people have things that last and we don't need to treat things as disposable or try and treat things which were possibly intended to be disposable as trying to make them last. Yes. Yeah, and I mean, it's not just, I mean, in terms of shoe consumption, like, it's not equal. It's like, yeah, we make 66 million pairs of shoes a year, but, like, the consumption is obviously not equal on a global level, uh, but it's not It's not equal within our, like, within Britain, within London. It's like you've got people with a 1,000 pair of shoes... Uh, and then you've got people with, like, one pair. Another thing that I'm going to bring up briefly as well, which I really liked in Stitched Up, was when you were talking about the um, the brand Tom's and how they give a pair of shoes for every pair that's bought. 
and you were talking about, and I hadn't thought about this before, but you were talking about the fact that that's treating a symptom of poverty, not the cause of poverty itself. So of course people who are poor don't have access to footwear, but just giving them shoes isn't going to take away their their problems. I thought that was a really interesting idea. Yeah, well, I love, there's that, um, that I, I think it's Desmond Tutu, I think it's Desmond Tutu who said, like, we've got to stop like fishing people out of the river. We need to go upstream and work out why people are falling into the river. You know, that's, that, that's the challenge. So, yeah, I'd, like, at some point, you, know, you can't just keep fishing people out of the river. You have to, you have to find out what's, what's really going on. Definitely. I want to talk about your background. I remember when I was reading Stitched Up, you were talking about how you had, and I think this absolutely came across in the book, you had a clarity because you weren't coming to the fashion industry from the perspective of a fashion journalist. You talked about the way that fashion press is really glorified advertising. And as somebody who trained as a fashion journalist, I thought this was so true and... I thought, like I say, I think that clarity really came across in the book, which allowed you to be really critical. What brought you to to write Stitched Up? Um, Well, I wrote Stitched Up in order to answer the questions that I had about the world, which I think is often one of the like the firmest kind of starting points for a book or a big a big project. Um, And you know, and for me, like I. Grew, I grew up, you know, in like in the sort of 90s when um, Primark first existed. You know, me and my friend could go to Hounslow High Street. You know, we could buy shoes for seven pounds. We, you know, that was our, you know, that was like heaven on a Saturday. Um, but I was all like, you know, kind of always aware, like that I could shop and shop and shop, come home with loads of bags of basically rubbish and then wake up the next day and want to do it all over again. So a lot of it was kind of like, what is going on internally? Why is there this black hole that I could, you know, that I can never fill up? So it was, so it was, it was, it was, yeah, it was questions of that. And then, you know, friends who had eating disorders, kind of like, what is, you know, what is, what is going on there? What's the, you know, what is the impact of our visual culture? And then, you know, and then I've always been interested in the environment and, uh, you know, and then workers' rights started to become more important. Um, and yeah, and while I've all, like I, you know, I'm interested in fashion. I enjoy the creativity of it. But like you say, fashion doesn't pay my bills. So I was free. Uh, I was free to say whatever I wanted. You know, I don't want to be hired by a fashion brand. No fashion brand in its right mind would want to hire me. So I could, you know, I could say whatever I wanted. And and I think that was really necessary for that book. Mm. Yeah, and it was interesting then to see that you'd written for. You've written for The Guardian, Al Jazeera, The iPaper and ID, and you've also written for The Business of Fashion, talking about sustainability and talking about crises that, that fashion's going through. So that's really interesting. Yeah, in the, uh, that was the very early days of Business of Fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we uh, ended up like, like parting company because I think, I, yeah, I don't, they're not radical in any real sense. Um, and I... I pitched some stuff and it, you know it, it wasn't working um, and also they never paid me for anything no, so really. yeah so I so you know but I was you know I was it was good to to get some of those opinions into that world mm. but yeah, yeah. They, they should pay journalists and 
be more radical. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I was at London Fashion Week last weekend, and there's a th one thing that was really obvious was that there's much more uh, there was much more model diversity on the catwalks in terms of size than I've I've seen before. But also, the British Fashion Council were talking about sustainability a lot. They had a swap shop organised. Uh, Mother of Pearl hosted a sustainability event. But I wondered what you thought of this idea of sustainability and whether it's a buzzword and something that people might like to be seen to be talking about or whether the industry really is capable of change. Mm, yes, good question. I mean, I think, I think uh, Extinction Rebellion have done a very good job of making the environmental impact of fashion unavoidable at Fashion Week. And I think the moves that we did see in this, this February's Fashion Week were a response to them. Um, it, like, is it enough? Like, no, it's absolutely not enough. You know, are, are we basically seeing every, you know, every brand kind of just print the word sustainability like willy-nilly on everything? Uh, yes. Um, but does fashion need to change? Absolutely. Like, either they change or climate change is going to change the industry and the world ir irrevocably, you know. Like, the climate scientist consensus is that we now have 11 years in which to, uh, in which to halt runaway like, climate catastrophe. And, um, you know, fashion is supposed to be about the future. And this is what I always say, it's like fashion is obsessed with the future, but we are in a moment where fashion is unable to comprehend what is you know what is coming at it and what it has helped to create as well so that is a really interesting um contradiction actually because we've just talked as well about victorian working conditions and as somebody who works in fashion i find that the people who are least willing to be the first to do something are actually people in fashion it makes me laugh that something will come along and everyone will say well, that's awful. And then all of a sudden, everyone's doing it. And I feel like there's this thing where it's the idea of being part of the future and mm. it's kind of pro-change, which I've sort of observed over time. And I don't know what that says about uh, people, but, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. That, um, yeah, it is, it is interesting. I mean, I, and I don't know, like, I don't know what... Like, I don't know what the means will be. I mean, I, I think... I personally think there's going to have to be regulation. Um, I don't think you can have... I don't think we will have a situation where a single brand or a single company will be able to go far enough by itself, even if, you know, they re like they really wanted to because all their competitors won't be doing that. So I think there has to be... You know, there ha we, have to, we have to do them a favour by, like, by making it very clear what they legally can and can't do. Yeah, I think regulation definitely has to come into it. And I think you're right. I think the model of capitalism is so competitive between brands that even the even the issue of size, even the issue of getting models that look like more like ordinary people than this very unreal aesthetic, even getting that kind of change has been a really hard slog. Yeah. Um and remains like something which has a long long way to go. Yeah. So yeah, what do you think about the idea that the it's not just that fashion companies are held back, but 
capitalism as a whole is geared towards conservatism. Yes, I, th- I mean, yeah, I, I think it. I think with regards to climate, like it is geared towards, yeah, being conservative to yeah towards being backwards, basically. I mean, and it's because uh, I mean, yeah, the, the top the two pillars are profit and and competition. Um, outdo it, yeah, outdoing your competitors, uh, squeezing as much as you can out of your you know out of your labor and and out of the planet. Um, so yeah, it's not it's not geared. It's not like it's not geared towards doing anything other than that. Which <laughs> is yeah, it's, it's, yes, deeply it's depressing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you say that um, the source of all wealth is the planet and human work, and we have what it takes to create a more equal society. So, what would that look like for you? Within the fashion industry, or within, or I think both. Both. Well. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's like, that's the big question. I mean, for me, like, so fashion, fashion without capitalism for me would be very, very exciting and interesting. Um, I think if, so first, like, so there's kind of two, two points that I think here. So the first one is that I think if you want to see the exact impact of fashion, you know, of capitalism on fashion, is you have to go back to Rana Plaza. Uh, and you have to go back to the morning, that morning in April 2013. And what a lot of people don't realise is that there was an argument outside the factory just before it collapsed between the managers and the workers. And the workers knew that the building was unsafe and they didn't want to go inside. And eventually the manager said if people didn't go back in and get to work that um, they would lose like a day's pay, which is, you know, or, or more in fact, which is impossible. So the workers were forced to go back inside that factory. And for me, that's the moment where we see the impact of capitalism, where we see that the lives of those young women were judged to be less important than the, the, the products, you know, the clothing that they were stitching uh, on those sewing machines. So first of all, you would never have that drive like, to, you know, to, to mass produce stuff to the extent that it like... Uh, you know, it overrules the you know, sanctity of human life. Uh, you would have, instead, you would have, like, worker control of the factories. Um, immediately, that would uh, cut production down because nobody is going to, like, vote or make themselves work, like, a 70-hour week. Um, you know, everyone, they'll make sure that, you know, they pay each other. And so, you know, production it would immediately fall. Um, and then at the same time, one of the things I think is really exciting about fashion without capitalism is the design possibilities. Um, and because at the moment, fashion is governed by loads of like stupid rules that aren't real. They're just like, you know, so pink, pink for girls, blue for boys, trousers for men, skirts for women, high heels, you know, all, all of these things. Um, and then like the class rules. So, you know, what people can wear to work, what, you know, uh, what it's acceptable to wear in certain like social situations, sexuality, you know, people aren't free to express themselves, um, like the rules around race and, and fashion. So all these really destructive things. And then also like most people don't get the chance to really, really be creative within fashion. You know, design is kind of on lockdown at the moment. There's like a, like a sort of 1% who get to do the fun stuff and then everyone else just gets to kind of buy what they can what they can afford um 
And I think if people had more autonomy and like involvement in design, then also they would be uh, like more connected to the clothes that they have as well. So I think, yeah, I think, I, I think fashion without capitalism would be really exciting. Um, and for me, that would be, you know, that would be, that's like autonomy of yourself and of your community and of your workplace uh, and of the planet that we live in and, you know, living within the means of the planet, not living in order to make profit for giant multinational corporations who don't care about any of us. Yeah. And actually, sometimes I think don't even really, I don't know, sometimes you get a sense that uh, big fashion companies don't even care about the art of fashion if mm. that makes sense like they're just pumping out these clothes right yeah. they don't really care you know what I mean versus people who really care about fashion as an art form it's just another product and another product to, to be sold and to make that profit on and not really about the art I mean capitalism really does kind of suck the life and joy out yeah. of things yeah it's true I mean and like I so, said yeah like you said like a lot of a lot of fashion on the high street is is very boring but even a lot of the high fashion is boring couture and stuff I mean it's still for like a market and I would argue an increasingly conservative market um, at the moment so it's not it's not the best that we that we could do at all hmm. it's so interesting isn't it and I think what you just uh, said throws up a whole load of things as well like the fact that you know, our grandmother's generation knew how to make clothes and knew how to um, even alter things that they maybe would buy or they would make things from pattern. And there was a lot of problems in that, in that it w was often women's work and it mm. was and it would fall to women to do that unpaid at home. But still, there's a there's a a loss of those skills and it's interesting now when we admire each other's clothes most of the time it's like oh I, you shopped well that's yeah. what you're really congratulating <laughs> yeah. somebody on you know they found something <laughs> in a shop I mean it's not um but yeah it's it's yeah it's really interesting um to think of fashion without capitalism because they are so linked I mean capitalism infuses everything that we do right mm. so um what about production do you think that do you think that we'd be producing a lot less as well and without capitalism? Yeah, I mean, yes, definitely. I mean, we, yeah, we should be producing for what we, what we need, you know, and to an extent what we want as well, like, you know, what we want, what we need. What we're doing at the moment is producing to what, you know, shareholder capitalism needs. Um, and that is not benefiting, that's not benefiting you and I, it's not benefiting uh, like anyone, it's not benefiting the people making the clothes, like it's not benefiting the people kind of on this hamster wheel of, of consumerism, um, and it's sure as hell is not benefiting the planet in, in any way, in fact, you know, it's, it's destroying it. Um, number one cause of Amazon deforestation is cattle farming, you know, and 50% uh, of everything made from leather is shoes. So, you know, so it's like, it's like is, you know, do we really want to chop down the Amazon to have a new pair of shoes? It's like these kind of, these kind of questions. Yeah, it definitely feels like we're living in a time warp where we have these ways of producing things which just are so outdated. And um, yeah, you know, like treating, just treating things as disposable, like we're in the... Midwest in the 19th century and we've just discovered yes <laughs> white people have just discovered yeah. a, a virgin land or whatever 
Tell me about your activism in general then, because I was reading that you were involved in Stop the War Coalition and the campaign for nuclear disarmament. So what's your journey into activism been? Um, so I was brought up in a very, like in a left-wing kind of vegetarian, old labour uh, household. Um, I was at university when the war, so-called war on terror started, so you know the attacks on Afghanistan and the attacks on um, on Iraq, and I yeah that that kind of completed my like political education. I've been involved in stuff like reclaim the streets and things like that before, um, but then yes, like stop the war. You know that moment. You know just check, like when you know when the twin towers were attacked, and then when Afghanistan was attacked, Iraq was attacked. That just like. Yeah, exploded my world view of everything and then I went to work for Stop the War straight out of university and then yeah and then uh, and then uh, campaign for nuclear disarmament as well and yeah just and yeah just so I've, I, I don't know it's just like oxygen to me I've just I've just always been doing that kind of like that kind of thing and just and trying to um, trying to make politics like accessible as well that's like one of my big passions and it's partly why I started writing about fashion is because I don't think the left should leave any you know any stone unturned like I think if we're not talking about fashion then you just leave it up to like you know neoliberal the neoliberal agenda and I think that would be really bad so that was one of the reasons I was like no one's writing about this like we should be absolutely I mean speaking as somebody who's on the left and who loves fashion it feels like it's so it was that was I think one of the most amazing things about your book was that you were speaking such with such clarity and such um great analysis of the industry and coming at it from a left wing perspective and why do you think the left does have a such a problem with talking about fashion? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. It's a hard like it's hard. I don't know if it's like i think I think there is a certain amount of uh, I think there's a certain amount of snobbery around and that it's, um, you know, it's not seen as, like, serious, uh, which is like, which is ridiculous. Um, I expect there's a certain amount of sexism in it as well, in that, you know, this is, like, this is, quote-unquote, women's work and, quote-unquote, like, women's pastimes uh, and stuff. Um, but also, I mean, like, I think at the same time, like there is a lot, yeah. There's a lot going on. There's just yeah. There's a lot going on, and I think we had some time before nine eleven where the anti globalization movement was really good on sweatshops and was really good on like Nike and you know globalization and corporate power, but nine eleven really kind of snookered that. You know, then it, it you know it had to then just be all about Iraq and Afghanistan and. Um, so there was, yeah, there was a moment that was lost, which I think is one that, you know, that is one of the huge tragedies of the war in Iraq and Afghanistan is that we got knocked, like the environmental movement got knocked back, the anti-corporate movement got knocked back and we lost, you know, we lost a good, a decade at least. Mm. And a lot of, not new, but in new forms, issues came up like racism and Islamophobia and things, didn't they, with that and did create like a whole a whole load of other things that people 
wanted to focus on and there's only so much resources that yeah that people have yeah I mean it's that was that was like I talk about that in footwork it's like we like with the global we had like a, like the anti-globalization movement was so global and one of the central bits was global solidarity so it was kind of us and then you know and then and then all the hideous rhetoric around the like the war on terror made it like about like us and them you know and like the west versus islam and all this like uh, like awful rubbish um and so yeah kind of knocked a lot of people's view and so then you're having to fight on like no we're you know like going back like just going back to the basics of like we're all on the same side kind of thing um and then you had oh you had occupy who were good at kind of bringing that into the kind of 99 percent and one percent but yeah we lost a lot of time yeah and how have things changed since then because I mean, now we've got Donald Trump in the White House, we've got, it feels like, and, and the environment, do you think the environmental issues are bringing corporate responsibility back into the equation in the way that they, they were in the conversation before the war on terror? Um, not enough. I really think not enough. I think we are still, uh, we're still thinking too much about ourselves and we're still looking at these issues in terms of like, like what can I do about my own wardrobe or my own, you know, food cupboard or my own makeup bag or like or whatever. Um, I don't think we are. I don't think we're back to having the kind of systemic analysis that we had in the, you know, in like the late nineties, um, which I, yeah, which we, you know, and that's one of the things I really hope to be able to help with is that kind of like pushing that political education and like this is not you know this is not your fault yes individual change like is is a factor it's important but it's not like it's, you know you can do that till you're blue in the face like it's not going to change the world yeah i read that there's there's corporations who like have the carbon like they have the carbon footprint in a year of like the entire population of france like pushing it back onto the individual to change and talking about veganism and all these things, as great as it is to try and do your bit, mm. is really shifting the focus of responsibility away from the people who really have the power. Yeah, 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 Com like completely. I mean, yeah, we've had like that, yeah, this massive growth in corporate power over the last few decades and it's not been matched by a growth in, in global governance or global legislation or, or anything. So they're just, you know, it's the Wild West analogy again. They're just off doing, you know, doing whatever they want to do. And we need to, you know, we need to act really fast. And part of that is kind of people letting go of the idea that all they can do is shop differently. Very good. It's true. <laughs> um, I'm going to go on to the last questions now. Oh, yes, yes. So... Um, the first question is, how can people support you and what you do? Well, I think what I would love at the moment is for people to track down a copy of Footwork. Um, I've been working on the book basically by myself since 2017, and I would just love for people to read it and to give me foot, like, uh, not footnotes, to give me feedback, <laughs> give me some, some feedback on, on what they think and whether it's useful and stuff and you know, whether you could buy it or get, you know, university or, like, library to order some copies and stuff. Definitely. And how can people reach you? Are you on Twitter? Yep, I am on Twitter uh, and Instagram um, as at Tansy Hoskins. 
Um, I am also on Facebook. Uh, I've got an author page on, on Facebook. I'm on Goodreads. I'm, yeah, I'm, like, I'm try, <laughs> trying to tick all the boxes. Yeah, you're out there. You're on, online. <laughs> online. Got my website at tansyhoskins.org. Brilliant. And my next question is, is there anything you can think of that people can, apart from obviously footwork, that people can read or watch to inspire them to make change? Anything that's inspired you in the past? Yeah, I've got a, like a weird suggestion. I mean, so I, like, obviously there's, you know, there's shelves full of fantastic left-wing texts. You know, we've talked about Marx. Uh, and you know Trotsky and Engels and um, Rosa Luxemburg, all those you know this all exists. Um, but there's a, a really cool fiction book that I would quite like to recommend because it's um, the book that kind of gives me a vision, a really clear vision of how things could be very very different. And it really interestingly talks about clothing as well in a really uh, exciting just dynamic really really interesting way um that doesn't you know it doesn't kind of shirk on design or anything it's like it's really interesting and that book is um woman on the edge of time by marge piercy um and it's a book it came out in the late 70s and it's, it's a very feminist book my one warning would be is that 50 percent of it is set in a violent um uh, like uh, a hospital like, like what you would call a kind of insane asylum back back in the day, um, and so I would put lots of content warnings on it. But um, the bits that aren't in the hospital are just like extraordinary. It's like a, a a new a whole new society. It's amazing. That sounds really exciting. Um, thank you for that. Um, and then the last question, which I ask everyone, is what would your advice or what would your how would you say that people can get involved more generally in change? Well, I think uh, the good news is that there are lots of really interesting and well-organised groups uh, of people who are already doing this. So my first thing would be basically pick the issue that you are really passionate about or pick several issues and then go probably online and just find the groups that are already doing stuff so for the fashion industry, for example, in United Kingdom, you already have uh, War on Want, Labour Behind the Label. You've got Extinction Rebellion, the fashion section of that, who are doing really exciting things. Uh, you've got Trade. So there's, all the, there's, you know, there's lots of groups who are already doing stuff. Um, I would also say, you know, like, you know, and then find other people. Like, it's kind of like collectively changing stuff. Um, and just yeah, getting getting out there, basically connect with people, go on demonstrations, um, find more like-minded people. You know, like blog, take photographs, make art, write books, write articles. Yeah, we've got to demonstrate that the alternative to capitalism and neoliberalism is is better. You know, we attract we can attract more people in. Yeah, definitely, because I think that that works in so many ways. Because of course, it when you make those personal connections it really helps you to get involved in those things and and it's amazing when you find people who are thinking the same way as you but then also of course we are stronger together right it's yes more people doing things together is gonna yes gonna affect yes change. we need to demand yeah we need to demand change i mean i often think like 
you know, read a lot of people who are kind of giving a lot of advice about how to shop differently, and there's a lot of that happening on, I see a lot of it on Instagram and stuff, you know, it must be like hundreds, if not thousands of people doing that, and I just often think, I wish you lot would all just get together. <laughs> if you lot all got together and just decided to go and have a demonstration or something, it would be, you know, be thousands of you, or pick, you know, one political demand, and all write a letter to you know to your MP or to you know British Fashion Council or whoever you pick, uh, and kind of collectively act, It'd be a, be a huge boost to the, the the fashion change movement. That is a brilliant place to end. Thank you so much for sitting down with me, Tansy. It's been such an interesting conversation. Thank, Thank you. you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> Future Heist is recorded and produced by me. Rena Neve Smith, with original music by Benjamin Tassi, artwork by Fleur Beck, and sound editing by Gibran Farah. Special thanks to Chloe Masegi and Joshua Lowe's Challenge. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at future underscore heist.